Good morning. Um, my name is Laura Kovacs. I'm going to read scripture today. Scripture is taken from Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. As the, script, as the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod the ruler, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we have heard the good news that in the beginning was your word, and that same word has spoken to us definitively in your Son, a word of grace, a word of truth, a word that makes all things new. Lord, may I decrease so that your beloved son may increase that your living word might be heard and your glory seen in jesus name amen so maybe you've seen the hbo series curb your enthusiasm <laughs> some are timid don't want to admit that they've seen it uh, but written and starred in by Seinfeld co-creator Larry David. It's a comedy, just to let you know. And one recent episode has Larry invited to give the eulogy at a funeral for his friend, the famed comedian Albert Brooks. And the catch is that Albert Brooks isn't dead yet. So the funeral is for a living Albert Brooks. And when Larry shows his incredulity by asking him, what for? Brooks explains that people are going to say all these nice things about him, about his career as a great comedian, but he won't hear them because he's dead, which seems like a waste. So they have this funeral service at Brooks's home as if he were dead, gathering all their friends and family together to toast him, including many Hollywood stars. And meanwhile, Brooks and his wife are watching from the basement on a live cam. Things don't work out as they should, however. Partway into the service, Larry, while searching for a washroom, stumbles on a closet. And the closet is packed full of hand sanitizer, toilet paper, and COVID masks. 
He then loudly reveals to the gathered mourners that Brooks is a COVID hoarder. And this causes the whole congregation to circle Brooks, pointing and yelling at him in shame. Hoarder, hoarder. And my favorite is Mad Men star John Hamm, who shouts, Those could have been used by first responders. <laughs> at the end of all this ruckus, Brooks just stoically says, Maybe we'll try again next year. So, it is funny, at least to me, of course, a living funeral. But it also got me thinking. If I were to listen in on my own funeral from the basement, what would be said about me? Not just the nice things or the successes, but if they knew what I'm hoarding, what's not literally, knew what I'm hoarding, what's hidden in my spiritual closet to the full me, what would they say? What defines who I am? And if you were to overhear your own funeral where the full unvarnished truth was shared, what would they say? What defines who you are? Would it lead with where you fit into your family? Father of three, grandma of four, husband, wife, beloved, aunt? Would it lead off with your job, teacher, mechanic, customer service representative, stay-at-home mom or dad, retired executive? Or would it lead off with the fact that you can't do anything for a living? You're retired, you're unemployed, out of work or on permanent disability? Would it lead off with your social identity? Would it lead with your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, whether you're culturally Polish or recently discovered Métis, progressive or conservative, citizen of the USA or Canada? Would it lead with your successes, how you grew up with nothing Retired handsomely, PhD in astrophysics, beloved nurse practitioner, lifelong volunteer, all the kids in university, all the grandkids in university, distinguished service medal. Or would it lead with your struggles? Homeless, depressed, on and off the wagon, perpetual victim, perpetual victimizer. Or would it lead with your failures? Broken marriage, never see the kids, prison sentence, or never lived up to expectations. Wanted it, but never found love in the first place. If you overheard your funeral, what would they lead off with? What would they say about you and who you are? You see, we tend to divine ourselves by one or two things said about us. The bad stuff leaves its mark. It's less that these things have happened to us or we struggle with them, but more the fact that we become what's happened to us. We start defining ourselves by the ways we've fallen short or been victimized. Well, the good stuff also has its shadow side. Success becomes addictive. Careers cannibalize families. And when these things are all gone and we can't do them anymore, we're left more or less 
empty. Some are sources of deep pride, joy, and encouragement, while others are sources of shame, regret, and ongoing suffering, tucked away in a closet from view, like so much hoarded toilet paper. But either way, we live with some kind of running definition of who we are, who we're supposed to be, who we want to be. So if you overheard your funeral, what would they lead off with? What would they say about you? What would you say about you? Today's scripture passage, which we've gotten to in a bit of a roundabout way, begins with people like you and I. People who are sure of who they are. And who they are has got to change. That's the clear thing. Who they are has got to change. It begins with John the Baptist dunking people at the side of the Jordan River. And earlier in the chapter, Luke tells us that the baptism John performed was, quote, for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance meaning turning away from those things that you've done or left undone that have tainted your life. And in committing yourself and undergoing this act, you were to be washed, to be made clean and made new. These are people living with all sorts of crushing definitions as to who they are, whether internal, meaning guilt and failure, or external, shame, disgrace, humiliation. And so it's easy to see why people kind of made their way to John. He's offering a new start. Get under the water. Get washed. The promise of a spiritual reboot. reboot, Freedom from all that soul-stifling stuff that defines them. The secret and not-so-secret closet stuff. Wash it away. Start right over. And, you know, Jesus goes down to the water like anyone else. And, I mean, that's a great conversation, theological comp. Why did Jesus get washed? I mean, he was without sin. But that's not the point of the sermon. We'll leave that till later. But Jesus comes down like every other person to be washed. But after that, it's not your average baptism, right? As Jesus' head goes under, after Jesus' head goes under, he prays. And as he prays, it says, the heaven was opened. That boundary that divides the earthly, everything we can see and touch and taste, from the spiritual, the heavenly, the unseen reality of things, that's just pulled back. The sky is pulled back. And as it says, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit, it says, descends on Jesus like a dove. The creative power of God falls on him. I mean, Luke is interesting. Luke Luke says in bodily form. So was this just like literally a dove came and landed on Jesus? And finally, after the dove lands on Jesus, after the Holy Spirit falls, a voice comes from the heavens. You are my son, it says. You are my son, the beloved And with you, I am well pleased. You are my son, says the divine voice, and with you, I am well pleased. 
And these very simple words are a combination of Old Testament passages. We have the seventh verse of the second psalm used at the coronation of Israel's king as the son of God, as well as the first verse of the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, a description of the servant of God who suffers and dies for Israel's sins. It's in Jesus' baptism where Jesus' identity as God's beloved, God's chosen one, is revealed. And it points towards his servant mission of healing humanity, reconciling creation, reconciling us to God and each other. So what was at first a ritual of repentance, a commitment, a chance to, for a new start, becomes for Jesus a moment of revelation, a divine unveiling of his true identity, a gift that is given that can't be taken away. Even though the world will pelt names at him like sinner, fool, fake, liar, while he's strung up on a cross, these words from heaven constitute Jesus' true identity. Here God claims Jesus as his own. You are my son, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. This is Jesus' living eulogy. The final definition of who he is before he's even dead. Written by God the Father, Albert Brooks style, and it stands forever, no matter what. And this is what our baptism means too, through him, through Jesus. Baptism for us isn't like John's baptism. It's not a baptism that simply begins with our repentance about our getting right with God so we can be forgiven and made new, or even becoming part of an organization. Our baptism is Jesus' baptism, which is first and foremost about the identity given to us by God, how God sees us. Do you not know, says the Apostle Paul, that those of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? In the waters of baptism, we too are eulogized by the Lord of all creation with everything but our belovedness washed away. Where we define who we are by leading with our relationships, our fleeting successes, our limited social identities, and our soul-crushing, life-stunting failures, who we are, according to baptism, leads with our election, God's unconditional, unmerited, unilateral love and favor for us in spite of everything that we've done, in spite of who we are. All that other stuff that defines us is washed off, revealing our true selves, the self unmarred by sin. Nothing we have to do, nothing we have to learn, nothing we have to accomplish, nothing we have to fix or that we've screwed up. That shameful closet full of PPE, that's empty for good. In God's eyes, it's not there. I mean, it's very much there. But in God's eyes and in the eyes of eternity, it's not. And it's true about us even before we're baptized, because baptism isn't a whole new identity, 
Like with Jesus, baptism is an affirmation of our destiny. Like with Jesus, baptism is an affirmation of our destiny. It's what we call a sign, a seal in space and time of a promise that's already been made. Something that's already true. Always been true. Even if we don't know it. That's why we can baptize babies with as much joy as adults. Because baptism is our little yes, our teeny tiny yes to God's big yes to us, made flesh in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's about who we are first, not about what we do. All those other definitions slip away with the baptismal water. And that may seem strange because religion is supposed to be about morals, isn't it? Christianity is supposed to be about doing what's required, about being a good person, isn't it? But what do I have to do? But that's not the good news. The good news is always first about what God has done for us. What we do is always the life lived in response. In baptism, we are claimed as Christ's forever, and that's the good news, the living water that we drink freely from day after day after day. It's the touchstone we refer to again and again and again, not the other way around. As the late great South African bishop Desmond Tutu once said, we are not loved because we are good. We are not loved because we are good, he says. But we are good because we are loved. We are not loved because we are good. We are good because we are loved. And that's who we are, who we're created to be, because God says so in Jesus Christ from day one. God said so before we were born, and God says so into death, into eternity, and beyond. Baptism is about who we are. So the question again, if you were to have a funeral, if you were to overhear your funeral, what would they say? Who are you? Baptism means that you're not your past. It means you're not measured by your great victories, nor are you forever tainted by the sin of your petty defeats. It means that before anything else, before everything else, God gets to say who you are and what you're destined to become. Because according to your baptism, either past baptism or future baptism, God's definition of who you are leads with grace. You are loved. You are forgiven. Your life is a seedbed for God's new creation. And that's the only measure that will ever count. Before all else, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. And with you, I am well pleased. Before all else, you are a child 
of the living God. And no one can take that away. Nobody. Not even you. So if you have been baptized, whether as a squirming, clueless child or as a squirming, full-grown, relatively clueless adult, today, remember who you are. Remember your baptism and be thankful. And if you have yet to be baptized, maybe it's time to start thinking about it. Maybe it's time for your final eulogy because this is who you are too loved by christ bought with a price forgiven freed made new in the grip of a grace you can't shake since before the beginning of time this is who we are and this is who you are too so come on in because the water is fine Amen. Please stand for our hymn of the day by the well.